Good morning and welcome to Bachelor Creek. We are so excited that you have joined us for worship today. For those of you who are here in person and those of you who are joining us online, uh, thank you. Uh, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, I want to remind you that in the back of the worship center, we have two shelves back there with Bibles. Uh, that's our gift to you. Feel free to grab one uh, so that you can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to jump right in. Here's what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now I want to unpack this real quick. Some translations say wise men, others say magi. It's a Mesopotamian word that's a difficult term to interpret because we don't exactly know who these wise men were, but there's a couple of possible theories. Some say that they were possibly ancient kings or maybe they were scholars. Some think that they were astrologers due to the circumstance of following a star in the sky. Others believe that these wise men, these magi, were monotheistic priests from the Mesopotamian basin. No matter who they were, one thing is for certain. These are individuals who are seeking a Messiah and are willing to travel a long distance to find him. Early church tradition believed that there were 12 wise men. Later church tradition suggests there were three because there were three gifts, and they even gave them names. Melchor, Belthazar, and Casper. Not to be confused with the friendly ghost. Now, we don't know whether they came from the Near East or the Far East, but it was an incredible journey considering the fact that the average person in the first century B.C. did not travel more than a 30-mile radius outside of where they were born. Our best bet is they came from Babylon. Now, if they traveled by the main trade route, this was an 800-mile journey. That may not seem like a whole lot to us who live in a day of airplane travel and interstate highways, but this pilgrimage was huge for them. They traveled through desert terrain and mountainous terrain and, and, and some treacherous areas, and it's possible that, that it took much longer than what we might consider. So if they traveled at most uh, 20 miles a day, then we're talking a minimum 40-day travel, but it's much possible that it took longer than that considering the, considering the information that they shared with Herod that they had seen a star two years before. I don't think any of this is insignificant. I mean, just st stop and think about this. Bethlehem was less than five miles south of Jerusalem. That means that the Jewish religious leaders wouldn't even go five miles out of their way to see if the rumored Messiah was true. Yet you have these wise men, whoever they were, go on a major pilgrimage. To say that they went out of their way would be a huge understatement. Here's my concern. I'm afraid that many of us will only follow Christ to the point of inconvenience, but no further. And I would suggest that if that's the case, then, then you really haven't even started following him at all. It's only when you're willing to, to go out of your way, when you're willing to go wherever, whenever, when you fully surrender your life to Christ, where you're willing to follow in his footsteps wherever they may lead, when you pass the inconvenience test, 
Only then can you truly consider yourself a follower of Christ. And one thing's for sure. The wise men passed the test. Continuing in verse 2. They ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, this is where the plot thickens. We read this story, and we think of it in terms of Jesus being the main character, right? But if you would go back 2,000 years, I'm not sure that's how it was originally understood. If you're an armchair historian in the first century B.C., and and you're betting on who will have the greatest influence on history, and maybe who will be remembered for the longest, you're going to bet on Herod against Jesus every single time. It's no contest. Jesus is perceived as the illegitimate son to a Jewish couple who lived on the wrong side of the tracks. Herod is this Roman ruler who ruled over a region called Judea for three decades. In fact, he ruled for so long that he was called the king of the Jews. That's why this question was so disturbing to him. He's thinking to himself, what do you mean the king of the Jews? I'm right here. It didn't make sense to him. The historical consensus is that Herod was ruthless. He killed his wife and his three children just to protect his throne because he was so insecure. Shortly after the wise men revealed that a baby was to be born and given the title King of the Jews, he commits one of the most heinous crimes against the village of Bethlehem. It's the part of the Christmas story that we don't like to talk about a whole lot. He orders that all of the boys under the age of two be killed. Here's what it says in Matthew 2, verse 18. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I wonder in our world today if maybe we can identify with with this a little bit more than, than past generations because of incidents like what happened at Oxford High School in Michigan a little over a week and a half ago where four students were were killed by gunfire. We, we think of what's happening with the Supreme Court right now where there are a couple of different cases where they're discussing uh, abortion and, and there's, there's, a, there's a chance that, that the number of, of abortions in America will be reduced and there's going to be millions of babies who will, who will have the gift of life. We don't have to look too far back in our future to be reminded of of horrible incidents like Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut, or the the number of kids that that were killed by ISIS in Syria, and the the number of atrocities that are considered, that are are committed around the world. And we think about these things, and they're hard to talk about, aren't they? I don't know what it's like for you, but, but I have a really hard time hearing the news, watching the news, especially when kids are involved. And part of me asks why. And we, we kind of immediately go to analyzing instead of grieving and praying. There, there's no good explanation except one, and, and, and I don't know the first thing about why people do this, but, but I do know that, that school shootings and, and the taking of innocent life is evil, and it's a reminder that, that not unlike what happened 2,000 years ago, we are born on a battlefield between good and evil. And every once in a while, evil will rear its ugly head in a way that cannot be denied. 
And that's what I think all we can really do is, 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 is throw ourselves at the foot of the cross again and we cry out to Jesus, Jesus, we need your help. I think what happened up in Michigan is, is so sad and so senseless, but, but I can't help but think that this is how the parents of those little boys in Bethlehem felt. C- can you imagine how they felt? An entire generation of, of little boys killed in one fell swoop by Herod, and the lone survivor of that genocide was Jesus himself. And here's what's the great irony of the Christmas story. As three decades later, these families that all lost their little boys would find hope in the one little boy who survived and who went to the cross for them and gave them hope that one day they could actually be reunited with the children that they lost. Our hope is not here and now. Our hope is not in the circumstances that surround us. Our hope is found in the cross of Jesus Christ that gives us hope not just for this life, but even in the midst of the worst tragedy, a hope for life after death. Continue in verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And then in verse 10, it's, it's so easy to read it, but, but I want you to think about the journey they had just come on to finally arrive at this place. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. That phrase, overjoyed, or rejoiced exceedingly, is what some translations uh, describe. It's an incredibly unique phrase. It's actually a combination of four words in the Greek language. So so it's a a rare joy that could not be contained. One possible translation would be, and again, these are are probably pretty distinguished scholars, and, and I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the wise men, but but, but I tend to think of them as being pretty proper and pretty stiff and pretty by the book. But this is the greatest discovery of their lives. This, this translation can mean that they, they jump for joy like little children. They had finally found the Messiah. Can I remind us today that true joy is found in one place and one place alone, and that is at the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't have to change your circumstances. In fact, you can't, but, but the Bible says you can change your focus. The book of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the sustainer, the originator of our faith. Someone said before, don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. And I think worship is the way that that we take our focus off of ourselves and we refocus on who God is and what he's done and what that means for us as a result. That's really what Christmas is all about. It's the gift that the Father has given to us by sending his Son. You know, chances are you will not get exactly what you want under the Christmas tree in a couple of weeks. But I'm telling you, if you kneel at the foot of the cross, you will get a gift unlike any that's ever been offered. It's the gift of salvation. 
It's the gift of sin forgiven. It's the gift of a right relationship with your creator. It's the gift of eternal life. And if you don't get anything else, I think you can get what you need and what will ultimately bring you perfect joy. I love the story about a little girl who was asked if she got what she wanted for Christmas and she thought about it for a minute and she goes, no, but then again, it's not my birthday. Isn't it amazing that as we celebrate the birth of Christ, that he's the one that offers a gift to us? It's the gift of salvation. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. It says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I love this part of the story because these are interesting gifts, aren't they? I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end or the giving end of, of the perfectly chosen and perfectly timed gift. Anybody? I know as a parent, it's an awesome moment, right? Like, like that's what we want, we're hoping for, that's what we're planning for on Christmas when when I was a kid, I remember, and I want you to think about the, the per perfect Christmas gift, the best Christmas gift you've ever received. When I was a kid, each year my parents would ask, what do you want for Christmas? And each year I'd tell them, I want a dog, I want a puppy. Now, when, when I was really little, I had some dog allergies, and so they didn't think that was going to be a good idea, but that went away, and so they would ask me, Christmas would come around, what do you want for Christmas? I want a dog, I want a puppy. Christmas would come and go, and no, no puppy, no dog. Well, when I was in sixth grade, they said, what do you want for Christmas? I said, I want a puppy. Christmas comes, we're over at my grandmother's house, and me, my brother, and my sister, and all of our cousins, and we've opened up all of our presents, and they're all tearing into them, and I'm kind of looking around, I'm wondering, where's, where's my present? Where is it? And I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's under the Christmas tree, maybe it's hiding behind something. No, there, there, there's nothing there, and so I'm kind of getting anxious a little bit, like, <laughs> did they forgive me? And so we kind of get to the end, and they're like, oh, yeah, Joel, yours, your present's down in the basement. So I walk down to the basement, I open up the door, and I look at the bottom of the stairs, and there's a little golden retriever puppy with, wrapped in a big red bow, and I was overjoyed. It was the perfect Christmas present. And what I love about this, this story here is, to be perfectly honest, when, when you look at what the the wise men bring Jesus, it feels like they bring the wrong gifts, doesn't it? I mean, what kid wants myrrh for Christmas? I mean, why not like a Jewish action figure, like Moses with staffs or Esther with changing outfits or something, right? Why not like Promise, Man, Promise Land Monopoly or why not like a Red Sea slip and slide or something, like something to play with, but, but gold, frankincense, and myrrh? It seems like the wrong gift. Now, I got an email a few years ago, and it was circulating around, and it was called The Three Wise Women. It said, do you know what would have happened if it had been three wise women instead of three wise men? They would have asked for directions, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and brought practical gifts. <laughs> what I love is that this ends up being the perfect gift. 
Because do you remember what happened right after the wise men leave? Joseph is warned in a dream that they need to flee to Egypt. Now you tell me, how does a minimum wage carpenter who just paid a huge tax bill fund a trip to a foreign country? I mean, th this is a bad circumstance. Hmm. Well, how about some high-priced goods that you could barter like gold, frankincense, and myrrh? It was genius. What a gift. Now, let me make my point. What I don't want you to miss about the Christmas story, and here's where I think we get really practical. The wise men's gifts were Joseph and Mary's miracle. The wise men's gifts were Joseph and Mary's miracle. Isn't that exactly what happened? I think we have to connect the dots here. I think part of the reason I love this story and maybe why I'm keenly aware of what's happening is because I have seen the impact that this church has made. For the last six months, I have had a front row seat to seeing what this church has been able to do for people in need in our community. So far in 2021, we have helped 23 different local families in our community with benevolence needs. That's 23 families that we've helped pay, pay their rent or, or help pay their mortgage or, or help pay their utilities. We had a family in our church who earlier in the year lost their home to a fire completely and you, the church, you stepped up and, and you raised almost $19,000 to help them get back on their feet to help them pick up some of the, the broken pieces, to, to help them not have to shoulder that burden all by themselves. Back in February, 137 of you helped pack 32,496 meals for IDES. That's thousands of people who faced some sort of disaster in their lives and they were wondering where their next meal was going to come from and you helped help them have their bellies filled. You sent 326 Operation Christmas Child boxes to kids around the world who have needs that most of us can't even imagine. And because of you, because of you, their Christmas is going to be a little bit brighter. It's incredible to see people who have experienced tragedy, hard times, you name it, receive a gift that can help get them on the right track. And I can't tell you how many times someone on the receiving end has commented on how they were blessed with just the right amount at just the right time. And to us, maybe it was just a gift. It was just some money. But to them, it was a miracle. And so let me take this opportunity to thank you for those of you who have given faithfully through Bachelor Creek this year. For those of you who gave to our harvest offering, I am excited to see what God is going to do. I am grateful for each and every person who is a shareholder in the mission of this church of making and growing disciples of Jesus. And as we look around this physical space that, that we call Bachelor Creek, our, our building, we, we know that there are some updates. We know that there are some things that, that we need to take care of, and we're going to address those things as we're able to. But, but I'm just going to tell you now, it's not about sticks and stones. It's not about brick and mortar buildings. It is about the individual lives that are going to be touched by the love of Jesus as we reach out and we be his hands and his feet. The buildings, the, the, the spaces, the, the rooms, that they're, they're tools, and we have to see them as tools. They're, they're tools that, that we use to, to help create space for more people. They're tools that we use to, to create uh, spaces where, where people feel safe and welcome. They're, 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 they're spaces, they're, they're tools for, 
People who don't know Jesus, who are guests, who come in and they're made to feel welcome. There are people who have been damaged by the church or hurt by the church in the past and, and these buildings are tools to help them feel comfortable. So that they can hear the gospel and they can have their lives changed for all of eternity. That's the miracle we've got to connect the dots. When we invest in the Lord's church, let's be sure we understand exactly what we're doing. Our gift translates to someone else's miracle. Just as much as these wise men's gifts translated into a miracle for Joseph and Mary and Jesus. So thank you for giving your gold and frankincense and myrrh. Let me close with this. A few years ago, I got a Christmas card from a friend. We did a staff Christmas gift exchange, and on the outside of the card, it said, your IQ results are in. I opened it up said, turns out you're not one of the wise men. <laughs> I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and smiled. I was like, that, that's, that's pretty funny. That's a good one. But I'll tell you what, the, one of the most favorite cards I've ever gotten. So simple, but so true. I love it. Wise men still seek him. Wise men still seek him. I love the way they bow down to a baby. In fact, the word bow there could mean to kiss. They bow as low as they can possibly go. So I guess the question is, what are we bowing down to? All of us bow down to something at Christmas. This time of year, I think it's a reminder that we need to bow down in one place, and that is at the foot of the cross and at the seat of our Savior. Wise men still seek him. And just like the Magi who crossed deserts and mountains to seek the Messiah, I think this Christmas is about going out of our way and doing everything we possibly can to seek God first. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century philosopher, and he said something remarkable. He said, there are two kinds of people one can call reasonable. Those who serve God with all of their heart because they know him, and those who seek him with all their heart because they do not know him. I think those are the two options. Seeking and serving. I don't think we stop doing either one. Do you pray with me? God, I thank you for the wise men. For going to such extreme lengths, across deserts, across mountains, looking for the Messiah. And God, I pray that that would be true of us. That for the rest of our lives, we would seek the Savior and we would serve the Savior. That, that we would realize that, that Jesus is worth everything we could possibly give, our life, our resources. I pray that this Christmas season, we would be reminded more and more about the sacrifices that the wise men gave and that we'd see a little bit of their lives in ours as we realize that everything, it's all about Jesus. But God, I pray that as, as we bring gifts, we realize that, that Jesus is the one that gives us the ultimate gift, the greatest gift ever, and that's the gift of salvation that's found through a relationship with him. 
God, I want to pray for anybody who's here today, anybody who's listening to my words, who's never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today they would make that decision that would not just change their here and now, but it would change their entire eternity. God, I pray that you would give them the boldness to make that decision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.